Well, good morning. Uh, we are continuing. We have been talking for the last uh, several weeks about what it means to be a Jesus-shaped church, a church that is more like Jesus. And for the most part, as we have been doing that, we have been talking um, about what the church is and how the church operates. Um, but in the midst of that, I don't want to uh, lose um, sight of of the church being tasked with not just existing and not just operating, but with interacting with and meeting the needs of um, and bringing uh, a connection to God to actual human beings, to people. Uh, the church is not just an organization. It has to be a people-centered group. Um, we have to care about people. Uh, we have to uh, meet people in their needs, where they're at, um, and help them to encounter the living God, uh, to know uh, the, the Savior who came and lived among us, who, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, died, was buried, rose again, and appeared to many witnesses. And, and so we want to take, as we kind of wind down this series over the next two weeks, is before we get to Advent um, in December, we want to take a, a couple of weeks to talk about um, the, the human side of church. Uh, how do we see and interact with humanity? And in order to do that, for me, I have to go all the way back to the beginning in order to do that. Whenever I think about humanity, whenever I think about who we are, who human beings are, I have to go back to the creation, to Genesis um, chapters 1 and 2, to those, the, those two very wonderful, very beautiful creation stories that we find there. And so if you want to come with me in your copy of the Bible, feel free. We're going to start in Genesis 1. We're going to read a couple verses there. Then we're going to hop over to Genesis chapter 2 and get, read a few verses there. We just don't have time to read both stories in their entirety. So we're just going to kind of um, uh, take a little trip and hop through a few verses. So Genesis 1, uh, 26 and 27 say, Then God said, let us make humans in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps along, uh, creeps upon the earth. That's a fantastic way of saying that, creeping things that creep. Uh, so God created humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. That's one version of the creation story, creation of, of humanity. Let's flip over to Genesis chapter 2 and um, read a few verses there. We'll find another version of this account, starting in verse 7. Uh, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jumping down to verse 15, um, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And then jumping again to verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. 
And the man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Uh, These two stories, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the two uh, creation accounts, these are radically different stories. Uh, This is not a single story over two chapters. This is two uh, different, separate accounts of creation. And in some ways, they are very disconnected and almost opposed stories. Uh, For example, between the two stories, the order of creation and the method of creation is different. However, in other ways, these two stories are incredibly complementary stories. For example, very little is said about what it means in Genesis 1 that God created humans in his image. But Genesis 2 helps us flesh that out to a greater degree. And that's what we want to do today. We want to to take a look at what it means to be made in the image of God. When when I think about how we're to be a Jesus-shaped church, how we're to interact with humanity in the name of Jesus, it begins with this understanding that every person, uh, every person that you'll encounter, every person that you'll meet, every person who has existed, who exists, who will exist, every person is created in the image of God. We have in us what is known as the Imago Dei. What does that mean? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Uh, That can mean um, many, 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 many things. In fact, it can literally mean hundreds, thousands of things to be made in the image of God, and we just don't have time for all of that. So, Instead of trying to share with you the thousands of things it may mean to be made in the image of God, I want to share with you four things that it has to mean to be made in the image of God from these texts. To be made in the image of God can mean far more than what we're going to talk about today, but it has to mean at least these four things. What does it mean that when God created, he made us in his image? It means, first of all, that we are incarnational. We are incarnational beings. That is, we have both spirit and physicality to us. That is what incarnation means. It is something that is spiritual or something that is divine taking on human form. And so when we, when we come to Advent, by the way, we talk about Jesus in this term that God became incarnate. Jesus is the incarnate God, that God took on flesh. We ourselves are incarnational. We are something that is spirit and something that is flesh at the same time. In Genesis 1, all we're told is that God made us. It just happened. But Genesis 2 fleshes that out for us a little bit more. We're told in Genesis 2 how we are made. In Genesis 2, we're told that God shaped us from the dust of the earth, from from the matter that he had already created. That we're made of physical stuff. And that 
in that shape, into that shape, he then breathed his own breath. He gave us a soul, a spirit. We are both. We are not just one or the other. We are not just physical things without souls, nor are we just souls without physicality. This actually is um, staggeringly important that we wrap our heads around. It is one of the first kind of major um, heresies that the church ever dealt with was this idea of the unity of body and spirit. And in some ways, we're still dealing with it today. Let me explain uh, very briefly. In the early days of the church, uh, there was this um, thinking that had crept into the church based in large part on the uh, philosophies of Plato, that Greek philosopher, um, who uh, said, and many after him had said, that, that kind of everything that exists in material nature was somehow corrupt or bad or evil. And that there was a true creation, though, that dwelled inside of those physical things that was spiritual, and that anything that was spiritual was good or whole or holy. And so the goal of life really was kind of to escape the physical and to live as pure spiritual beings. And so the early church comes along and says, no, we are incarnational people made in the image of God. We have spirit, but we also have flesh. We've been given bodies, and our bodies matter in some way. And others said, well, no, there's this other thinking that, that maybe we're just spirits. In fact, we might even have always been spirits. We may have predated our bodies, and, and then we just kind of get a body for a while, and, and we use it, and then we go back to being spirits again after our body is done. And the church said, nah, hang on a second. That's not okay. Uh, and so there's this wonderful um, mystic saint in the 7th century named Maximus the Confessor who talks about this a little bit. He writes uh, in his book, which has the best title of any book I've ever seen, on the cosmic mystery of Jesus Christ. Um, he writes, they, people who believe this, they have borrowed too much from Greek teachings. According to their opinion, we were all connatural with God and had our dwelling place and foundation with God. In other words, we were always eternal with God. Then God envisioned the creation of this corporeal world to unite them with bodies. So once we were just spirit, and then we became spirits inside bodies. Maximus continues, rather, each was created in an appropriate way at the proper time according to the wisdom of the maker, and each acquired concrete actual existence. Maximus says, no, we were not always spiritual people. There was a time when we didn't exist. And then God made us. He gave us body and spirit at the same time, and we exist as human beings. This is what the church has taught, and the church has really wrestled with this for almost 2,000 years. Why in the world does it matter that we are incarnational? Why does this matter? Because of a teaching that still inhabits much of the Western church today, that the point of Christ's salvation is for our souls alone. That the point of salvation is to save the human soul so that the human soul can go to heaven when the body dies. This teaching is all over Christianity. You have heard it in some way, shape, or form. I'd lay money on that. I mean, not that I'd do that, but I would, all right, if I did. 
And this is a problem because what this does is devalue the physical bodies that we have as somehow less than or bad or unworthy or at best case scenario, discardable. It also then expands to say that our world is seen the same way. Our world is in some way, shape, or form discardable. Because after all, we're just all going to go to heaven and this is going to be destroyed anyways. What that then results in is a problem for humanity because we no longer as Christians care about issues of justice like hunger, housing, equality, safety, violence, abuse, war. Who cares about those things? Those are physical things. We just need to get people saved so that they can get to heaven. This strips away the message of Jesus in his life who cared for the physical nature of humanity, who said that you as a person matter not just in your spirit but in your body, who would say to people, your sins are forgiven and also get up and walk who would say, I I am the bread that comes down from heaven, but also would make fish and, and literal bread to multiply. Jesus cares about both our spiritual self and our physical self, and we have to as well, not just for ourselves, but for those around us. We cannot afford to see people as disposable. We cannot afford to see creation as disposable. We are incarnational. We are incarnational. Do we see the world around us? The physical world that God has made and physical people who walk in it, the physical creatures who inhabit it, do we see the physical as important just like we do with the spiritual? We have to. We are incarnational people. That is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. To be made in the image of God means that we are incarnational. To be made, I'm sorry, I wanted to, I already shared Maximus's quote with you. To uh, be made in the image of God means that we are incarnational. To be made in the image of God means that we are also vocational. We are vocational. To be made in the image of God means that we have work to do. God has created us in order to do something. As much fun as I think that it would be just to sit around and watch Star Trek all day, and I do think that would be fun, that gets old really fast. I'm shocked at how fast I lose interest in doing nothing. Like, I, you know, I, I go through my week and it's so busy and I get to the weekend and I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I can just sit and do nothing. And I do that for a few hours and go, uh, I've got to do something. What's next? We're made to do things. We're made for rest. That is true. We're made for Sabbath, but we're also vocational. We're made to do things. Uh, in, in Genesis chapter 1, when God makes humanity, he says, we're going to give them dominion over the earth. What does that mean? And Genesis chapter 2 fleshes that out for us a little better, that we're to till and tend what God has made. In other words, we're to be good stewards over this physical creation that God has given us. We're to not just care about, but care for people and creatures 
and creation. Uh, scholar N.T. Wright uh, says this uh, in his uh, book, The Day the Revolution Began. He says, what the Bible offers is a covenant of vocation. And the vocation in question is that of being a genuine human being with genuinely human tasks to perform as part of the Creator's purpose for the world. We are created to work in the world. Uh, part of that work is, is, is tending to creation. Part of that work is filling creation with, with the presence of God. Part of that is filling creation with more of humanity. But we are created for work. Do you see your work as sacred vocation? as something that God has given to you in order to care for people or creatures or creation. It takes a while to reframe our minds around this, that, that our work is not just about making money, and our work is not just about existing, and our work is not just about what we like to do or what we have to do to get through the day, but our work is about caring for other people, whatever you do. Whatever you do, whether you are a, a, an educator or an architect or whether you are in medicine or whether you uh, work in sanitation or whether you work outside the home or inside the home or, or whether your, your work is with um, IT or with face-to-face -face with humans, what, whatever your work is, in some way you have a vocation to care for others and to care for the world that was made. Uh, we're going to actually um, have an opportunity after the new year to talk about this a little bit more. Our equip groups, we just had three equip groups this fall. We're going to have some more in February. One of them is going to be on sacred vocation. Our friends from Impact Campus Ministries, uh, Marty Solomon and, and my wife, Sarah Johnson, they're going to lead that. That's going to be one of our equip groups. Uh, and by the way, let me say thank you to those who led our equip groups this fall, to, to Dane, to Tyler, um, and to Casey for those groups. If you were a part of that, you know how fantastic those were, and we're going to do more of them uh, in the coming year. Look forward to that. Um, in the, to get back to the sermon, though, uh, we, are, we are made for vocation. Do we see our own work as God-ordained and sacred, and do we see the work of others as God-ordained and sacred? The, the waiter or waitress you're going to encounter at lunch today is their work caring for you sacred? Do you see that? So often we abuse people in their work. We use people in their work because we fail to see their work as part of the God-given vocation that is ordained for all of us. We are incarnational, we are vocational, we are communal. We are communal. When God made us, he made um, us by being a communal God, and he made us in community. The language of Genesis 1 is so bizarre, and scholars for centuries have tried to figure out what to do with it, and eventually we just kind of have to throw up our hands. Because somehow, so God just says, let us make man in our image. What does that mean? Nobody's 100% sure. Uh, I tend to think that it is the, the communal Trinitarian God speaking to himself, speaking in concert, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, saying that we, the three of us, who are somehow one, we are going to make man, we are going to make human beings, 
And in order to do that, in order for them to reflect who we are, they have to be communal as well. And so when, when God creates humanity, Genesis 1 takes very great care to tell us that he made us not just one, but two, male and female, so that there is from the very beginning a sense of community for us. In Genesis chapter 1, as God creates seven times in Genesis chapter 1, we see that something that he made is good. Seven times God says that. In Genesis chapter 2, however, we run across the first instance of something being not good, and it's when God, uh, in Genesis chapter 2, in that creation story, makes only the male and not the female. Here we find that something for the first time in all of creation is not good. It's not good for us to be alone. We are designed for community. Be very careful not to read into Genesis 1 and 2 that we are designed for marriage. That has been done any number of times throughout history. That is not what the text says. The text does not say that we are designed for marriage. It says we are designed for community. It just so happens to be that the union of Adam and Eve, what we would think of perhaps as marriage, although that word's not used in the text, is the first kind of community that we're introduced to. But it certainly isn't the last kind of community that we're ever introduced to. We are designed for community. Marriage does not automatically create that, by the way. Nor does marriage automatically alleviate loneliness. I have been um, single in my life far longer than I have been married. As an adult, I've been single far longer than I've been married. And I experienced moments of true loneliness as a single person, and I experienced moments of true community as a single person. I have been married, and I love being married. I enjoy being married. Hi, person I'm married to. Uh, I love being married. There are moments of true community in our marriage. There are moments of true loneliness in it, too. Loneliness is not dependent upon whether or not there's another person around you. It has to do with the, the state of your soul, whether you feel seen, known, accepted, and loved. And there are moments where, where to even despite my best intentions, my wife feels that loneliness. That happens. And so we need many forms of community, whether we are single or married. And one of the things that God has given us in order to, to experience our communal self, our communal nature, is the church, a body, a community of people where we can come together in a myriad of different ways and we can interact with people who are like us and unlike us and we can find a sense of belonging. Do you have a sense of belonging in your life? I hope that you do. Do you care about other people belonging? Do you care that other people's needs are being met for community? Are we working for that for others? We are vocational, we're incarnational, we're communal, uh, and we are sexual. We are made with sex and sexuality. God says, or Genesis 1 says that he made them male and female. The two people that he made uh, are are different in some way, and that, that first bit of diversity that we are given is a sexual diversity. 
we have to be very careful here to ask ourselves what questions the Bible is and is not trying to answer when it tells us that people were made male and female. I don't think that primarily the Bible is trying to answer a question of biology or science. I think that primarily the Bible is trying to answer a question of origin. In both Christianity um, and, in, um, and in other religions, it was very, very normal. Uh, and Genesis 2 kind of even hints at it to a degree. It was very, very normal to see males as being made in the image of God and females as being made in the image of males, which then lowers the worth of women in many societies around the planet throughout human history. Um, this has crept into the church. St. Augustine, for all of his wonderful, wonderful teaching, has done a real number on human sexuality for Christianity in the West. Um, and so we still wrestle with this idea that some way, somehow, there are people among us who are less than, who are made in the image of men instead of being made in the image of God. And I think that Genesis 1 is trying to tell us that all people in all of our diversity, no matter who we are, no matter what gender we are, no matter what we look like, no matter where we're from, that every person is made in the image of God. I also don't think that Genesis is trying to tell us that the image of God is found in men and women together only. I think that Genesis 1 is trying to tell us that in both men and in women, the image of God is found fully. You are not part of the image of God by yourself. You are the image of God by yourself. And we are the image of God together in community. However, having said that, there is something here about human sexuality uh, that comes along with being made male and female in this uh, passage. And I'll say this, um, there's a lot of ways to, to understand and to see human sexuality but we have to understand that human sexuality is not just about the act of sex. We have reduced sexuality to an activity in our culture, and we have become so hypersexualized that we can almost not interact with other human beings in proper and appropriate and life-giving ways. I, I'm just gonna be really honest, I have a very hard time interacting with other men, especially because of the hypersexualization of our society, because I am always comparing myself physically to other men. That is off-putting to me than to be around other guys and try to engage in a deep way. And whether that for you is, is, is um, a, a, a warped sense of sexuality for about the same gender, other gender, it doesn't matter. We, we have um, a warped sense of ourselves and a warped sense of each other, and we need to somehow uh, find a way past this. John, I'm going to skip this quote. Would you go to the next one? Um, author Deb Hirsch says in her book, Redeeming Sex, that sexuality can be described as a deep desire and longing that drives us beyond ourselves in an attempt to connect with, to understand that which is other than ourself. Essentially, it is a longing to know and be known by other people on physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual levels. 
And so because we have gotten our sexuality wrong, because we have reduced sexuality to just an activity, we have such a hard time relating to each other on human, incarnational, vocational, communal levels. We need to see people as whole people, including with a healthy view of sexuality. We need to see people uh, as being deeply loved by God so that we may love them deeply as well. We need to see people uh, as people to be deeply known in life-giving relationships and not things to be cast aside easily. We need to see people as worthwhile of having dignity and worth in and of themselves as men and women, and so not to be used or abused. Who we are and how we interact with each other matters. Our maleness or femaleness matters. Our relationships and friendships, both with men and with women, matter. I have been part of religious spaces that have told me that I should not have friendships with, with people of the other gender. That's silly. Jesus does. Paul does. Other people in the Bible do. What I need is to be able to see people as people, as they are truly made for who they truly are and interact with them on human levels. You are created in the image of God, and so is every single person that you will meet today, and tomorrow, and the day after that, and all the days after that. We are made in the image of God. Every person that you talk to, every person that you go to school with, every person that you go to work with, every person in your house, every person in your neighbor's house, every person that you drive on the road with. <laughs> yes, Katie, every person you drive on the road with is made in the image of God. What if we began to see it that way? What if we began to see people as made in the image of God? What if we began to see people and made in the image of God and therefore worthy of love and dignity and respect and wholeness and well-being in the earth? It takes, I think, probably a lifetime to learn to do this. But we can begin to put it into practice. This week, I want to invite you to do something with me. I'm going to try this week to take just a second as I interact with people uh, just in the back of my head, silently between me and God, I'm just going to offer a quick prayer as I interact with people this week. And, and my prayer is just going to be this. God, would you help me to see this person as you do, someone made in your image? Whether it's the cop that stops me, hopefully not. Whether it's the person at the checkout line at the grocery store. Whether it's one of you after church today or, or whether it's my family around the Thanksgiving table this week. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this week to, to make that my prayer. God, would you help me see this person as someone who's made in your image and deeply loved by you? Would you do that with me this week? Uh, let me close with this. Um, this is a quote from uh, Nona Verna Harrison, uh, who I'm deeply indebted to for this sermon. And if I could, I would have just sat and read her book to you today. Um, 
but uh, her book, God's Many Splendored, in God's Many Splendored Image, she writes this. The good news is that God, who has created the world out of nothing, has made all human persons, everyone without exception, to be people of real value. For he has placed his own value, the divine image, in each of us. Amen. Uh, we come to the table at this time in our service um, as we do each week. And as we do, we uh, remind you, as we do often, that this table is not ours. This table doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to the church. It doesn't belong to the leadership of the church. This table is the Lord's. And the invitation to come to it is His. And that invitation is for every person. For every person. Because every person is made in the image of God and is deeply loved by the Father. So if you are here today, and for whatever reason, you are feeling less than, less than whole, less than loved, less than worthy, less than accepted, I want you to know that you are not. You're made in the image of God, and you're deeply loved by the Father. And this table is the proof. Because here we remember that Christ died for us. For each one of us and for all of us. So that each one of us and so that all of us could come to the saving knowledge of grace and love through Jesus and through what he did on the cross. So in just a second, we'll come, all of us, um, to the table, all who want to participate and take a piece of bread and take a cup of juice. We'll take those back to our seats. And when we've all done that, we'll take those things together in unison. Before we do that, um, as we do each week, we're going to enter into a moment of confession. Uh, this is a different confession than we are perhaps used to. It's the same one we used last week. But it is just a moment for us to remind ourselves that we are people in progress. We are made in the image of God, absolutely. But because of our choices and because of the way the world is, that image has been muddied, sullied, tarnished in us. We are, we are not who we've been created to be. We still have the image of God in us, but it is necessary to acknowledge that we've done some damage to it and that we need Jesus to restore it uh, to the way that it was designed to live in us. So if you're willing... Uh, would you stand with me, whether in body or in spirit? And would you confess together before we come to the table our need for our Christ? <laughs>